Nicole. This is Kara, and I am from beautiful Round Lake, Ontario in Canada, aka Paradise of the North. And my question to you is, in terms of what others expect you to do and what you really want to do, how do you know when to draw the line and be able to say no to what they want you to do without feeling bad or selfish or rude. Thanks. That was Kara. This is a special Q&A show, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 175. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me. The podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm really excited to share today's episode with you. It's a new style of episode featuring 10 questions from folks in my Patreon community about all sorts of topics. And in a minute, I am going to give you my answers, my most honest answers to every single one of those questions. But before we get to that, I would love to quickly read a recent iTunes review. Today's review is from Miss Lissa Melissa, and they say... This is the way we should all be talking with each other. Discussions that are open, respectful, and curious, that get honest fast, get to the heart of matters, and have common threads for everybody. This is my go-to podcast, and I listen to it most days. I constantly tell anyone about it who will listen. Inclusive and supportive, this show is really the best. Oh, that makes me so happy. Thanks, Miss Lissa Melissa. And thanks to everyone else who has taken the one, two, or three minutes, however long it takes, to rate or review the show. It might seem like a small thing, but the ratings and reviews really help to boost the visibility of the podcast and ensure that new people can find us. And I so appreciate the love. I also wanted to give a quick, huge thanks to the 400 plus people in our Patreon community whose contributions of $1 or more per episode are quite literally what make this entire show possible. Real Talk Radio is a 100% listener-supported show with no ads or sponsors, which you probably know by now. And that just means that these conversations are financially supported by awesome, regular people just like you. You can join us and learn more about all the fun bonuses that you get as a community member over at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question session. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. I would love to have you in our fun community. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to hear questions that were asked by 10 different members of our Patreon community, along with my honest responses to those questions. The only Q&A episodes that I've done in the past have been super topic-specific about hiking. They were all recorded after my long hikes, and I thought that it would be neat to try opening up the Q&A sort of style for a wider range of topics. So that's what we're going to do. These questions dig into money, like the financial decision to move into my small van this spring and sort of what that entailed. The questions are about business, uh, how to grow a business while staying true to yourself, And then there's questions about time management, creating a feeling of home while in transition, doing what you want instead of what other people expect, and more. I hope that you enjoy it. And if so, I'd be happy to do more of this style of episode in the future. Just let me know. 
Oh, actually, um, I have one more announcement for the Patreon community. I got more questions than I have time to answer in this one episode, so I'll be making a second special bonus Q&A episode released exclusively within the Patreon community probably next month. That way, everyone's questions can get answered even if they didn't make it into this episode. Okay, so without further ado, here is the Q&A episode of Real Talk Radio, and you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at realtalkradiopodcast.com. Hi, Nicole. This is Rebecca from Wisconsin. Um, I would like to know where your attention has been lately, slash what, what does your current season feel like? Mm, this is such a lovely question, Rebecca. Thank you for asking. Oh, where's my attention been lately? What does this season feel like? Uh, so first, a timetable, I guess. Where are we? We are in August right now, mid-August at the time of this recording. I got divorced in February. I hiked the 700-mile Southern California section of the PCT in March and April. I moved into my tiny van that has about 20 square feet of living space in May restructured my entire business, and then drove across the U.S. in June and July, hosting the summer series of wonderful and intense Real Talk retreats. And then in early August, I flew to London to host one more retreat. That was the last retreat of the summer. And then to begin a six-week road trip around the U.K. <laughs> oh, listing all those things out. I'm like, sure, that's why I feel tired. Um, and all of those things, the funny thing is all of those things, literally pretty much every single one of them, was decided on and committed to during the same one-week time frame in October of 2018. There was one week last year, basically the week that I, you know, knew for sure that I was getting divorced and that, you know, these are the changes that were happening for me. I sat down and made some decisions, arguably maybe too many decisions, too much advanced planning. I think some of it came from a place of sadness. I was feeling sad and I wanted some things to look forward to. Um, you know, this trip to the UK was definitely part of that. The retreats were definitely part of that. But, you know, in general, I was also feeling excited about being able to take advantage of new opportunities and, and kind of that whole mix of emotions really led to this one week period in October where I made you know, essentially all the decisions that I'm living right now. And I find it kind of hilarious that a series of decisions that were made in a one-week time period last fall have shaped the entire year of my life so far. So the current season that I'm in is essentially that current Nicole is living out sort of the repercussions of past Nicole's decision-making, I guess. And what has it felt like? It has felt full. It has felt good and exhausting and scary and lonely and filled with possibility. It's felt like a lot of different things, um, which, you know, as I know from talking to friends and other folks can be said by a lot of others this year too. This has just been a really full year. As for where my attention has been lately, let's say over the past few weeks, I guess I can narrow it down. Um, the top let's say the top three things that have been on my mind these past few weeks, probably the past month. The first one has been defining what enough looks like for myself. And that's in really every area of my life going through all of the transition that I just sort of quickly listed above and, you know, all of sort of the uh, mental and emotional turmoil and growth that comes with that has really given me 
a chance to redefine that what does enough look like? And I'm realizing in how many areas of my life, I never really asked myself that question or never really asked it in an honest way where I let the real truth come to the surface. So that's been everything from, you know, what is enough money? for me right now? What does my ideal life cost? Where is that money going to come from? Defining enough in terms of friendships. What are my needs and desires? If I'm being most honest in, in, you know, the relationships in my life, what do I really want? What am I craving? What do I have the capacity to offer as a friend? What can I give? What can I provide people? How can I care for the people that I love? And what is enough look like? Because I do think that there's a saturation point for everything. There's such a thing as, you know, maybe too many people that we're trying to be really committed to or too many plans and, you know, potentially trying to make too much money if the hustle of that is really getting in the way of, you know, the rest of life. So yeah, just like looking at enough as far as money, as far as friendship, as far as rest, this has been an interesting one where I think that I have been surprised this year and almost a little bit temper tantrumy, resentful of how much rest that I'm finding that I actually do need. And I don't know if that's just as a result of all of the changes, transitions, what that has meant for my mental health, which is actually doing really well and feeling really strong right now, but um, was not the case this winter for sure and early spring. So I've needed a lot more rest and care. And so like what enough looks like in terms of rest this year might be different than what it looks like next year or you know, this month versus next month, you know, what does enough growth look like? I don't always constantly want to be having to make things bigger and bigger and better, but I do always want to be growing. So, you know, none of these are necessarily easy or simple questions to answer, but defining what enough looks like and trying not to get caught up in other people's metrics or other people's definitions of success or what other people think that enough looks like or tell you that enough looks like in any of these different things, that's really been something that my attention has been on. I've been struggling more with comparison lately. I'd say this year, I think I've been struggling more with comparison this year than I can really ever remember in the past, maybe in my mid-20s. And I think that that's probably because of the transition. When so many things change at once, it can feel really unsettling. And even if that change is something that you are doing on purpose, or even if it's ultimately the best fit, that level of things being unsettled and unstable, I think can be a breeding ground for self-doubt. And I think that for me, that's where kind of falling into the comparison trap of looking at what other people are doing with their lives that might be 5, 10, 15, 20 steps down a certain path than me, that has been really tough. So really doubling down on, you know, defining these things for myself is where I'm trying to put my attention. So that's one thing. I'd say another thing, a second thing that my attention has really been on has been pleasure. Really letting myself have more pleasure every single day, believing that I deserve it, that, you know, pleasure is our birthright, that I don't have to earn it in in some kind of way where I've done enough that then therefore I deserve pleasure. And trying to expand my experience of pleasure or definition of, you know, what encompasses pleasure, you know, orgasms, sure, that's an easy answer, but, you know, also delicious food, my favorite chocolate, scones with clotted cream here in the UK, a hot bath, a fun book that makes me laugh, a solo underwear dance party in front of the mirror. There's lots of different ways to experience pleasure. You know, the the holy full body satisfied feeling that I get when I keep the promises that I make to myself, that's a really specific kind of pleasure that I love. I feel like there's pleasure everywhere if I'm willing to look for it and if I'm willing to stop thinking of 
self-denial or self-control is some kind of moral superiority or some benchmark that I'm trying to reach, then I can have pleasure everywhere. I'm trying to lean into that. And let's see what else. I think the other thing really that's been on my mind is freedom. It's a word that comes up a lot for me whenever I do values work, right? What are your values? How are you living your values? Freedom comes up over and over again. And I don't think that's necessarily a surprise for anyone who knows me, you know, looking just at, you know, my career, my work choices, you know, choosing to be self-employed in this capacity or, you know, employed as I have been in the past with kind of stringing together some seasonal things or doing um, some non-traditional work, it's kind of always been that way. And I've always chosen that path over maybe a more predictable or a more traditional or even a more stable one because I'm valuing the freedom over the security. Not that I think it has to be that binary. It's not necessarily one or the other, but in general, you know, those have been my choices. And so freedom is definitely something that I, I value and I want to be free, but my attention has also been on the larger questions of how can I work toward a world that's includes liberation for everyone where everyone's truly free? What would that even mean? What would that look like? Where are we now in regard to oppression and freedom for different groups? And what lies within that gap between where we are and, you know, maybe where we dream of being and then kind of pulling it down into what can I do to close that gap, even a tiny bit? Where can I help? Yeah, what can I do? Where can I help? I've been thinking about that a lot lately. So that's just some of what my attention has has been on. But like I said, it's been a really full year so far. So <laughs> yeah, makes sense that that is where my feelings are kind of all over the place and some of these deeper things are really coming up. Hi, Nicole. It's Mary from New Hampshire. I'm calling with two questions. My first is, have you ever thought about scaling Real Talk? I've been to your live events and I just see the power in open and honest communication and it's something I wish everyone could have. And my second question is, if Trixie could have a home, like a home-based home, where would she be? Oh, it was such a delight to have you at a live event, Mary. I'm so glad the experience felt therapeutic for you, that it was fun, because it certainly is the same for me. Super therapeutic, really fun, wonderful to get to connect in that in-person way. And yeah, I wish that everyone could experience it. Also, obviously, the power of honest conversations is something that I believe in with my whole heart. It really forms the foundation of pretty much all of the work that I am doing right now. And I think that online stuff is great, but there is no substitute for doing that kind of work in person. That's what I have felt at the one day live events. It is what I have absolutely felt at their retreats, the five retreats so far this year. There's just something about sitting in a room with other people who value honest conversations and who want to have just like deep talk and connection without necessarily an agenda. There's something that's really special about that. And I mean, the question of how or if to scale it is obviously something that I've thought about this year, especially in restructuring the business. But I don't know, the scaling thing, I honestly have no idea how that would work. I don't know if this is going to be a helpful answer, but I will try to, you know, be as honest as possible. I've been thinking a lot this year about what my role is in this work, that I don't feel like I'm quite a teacher. I don't feel like I'm a coach. I feel like more than anything, I'm a facilitator, a facilitator of honest conversations. And my skills, I think, are in creating the container for wonderfully honest conversations to happen, whether that's with one other person that I'm recording with here on the podcast, whether that's, you know, with a 
room of 15 people at a live event or, you know, six to eight people at a retreat, that type of thing, really just like creating the space where those conversations happen. I also think that one of my skills is hearing between the lines of what someone is saying and nudging them toward their truth or kind of pulling out what I'm hearing that might be between the lines of what they're saying. And another skill I think is holding space for what I think of as emotional neutrality, by which I mean giving the people the space to share their truth or to bear witness to the truth and like really with the point or the goal of just letting what's true be true without needing to judge what's true without needing to judge ourselves and really just starting there that it that might sound a little ambiguous but I've been thinking about that about the power of just like letting what's true be true not having to fix each other not having to jump into giving advice just really giving people the space to share what's true for them I'd also say that one of my skills is believing in people, even if they aren't yet able to believe in themselves. That sort of goes along the lines of, you know, the we can do hard things philosophy that I I embody and really think about a lot, but also balancing that belief in our potential with a compassionate understanding of the realities of our current capacity. That's kind of the grit and grace thing, right? Of, you know, believing that it's all possible and like being willing to do the hard work to make it happen. And then also the grace of, yeah, but we're going to fuck up or things are going to go wrong. And, you know, being able to treat ourselves with so much tender care. I don't know where all of sort of what I just outlined those skills and the work that I enjoy doing. I don't really know how that works scalably because if it's something that I'm doing, you know, with folks one-on-one or in a small group, it all involves me being there and involves my time and my energy. So yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, one type of scalability is sort of the one-to-many model, right? I'm one person and kind of broadcasting to many. I think a podcast is a really good example of that because, you know, the podcast, the amount of, let's say, work and energy that it is for me to create an episode is the same whether there's 100 people listening or 100,000 people listening for the most part. That wouldn't necessarily be true with, you know, the Patreon community or, you know, from the community management aspect, there is, you know, a limit of scalability there. But, you know, I think with podcasting, I think with writing that there's kind of a one-to-many thing that scales pretty well. But I do think that the intimacy of in-person events, live events, I don't think that that is scalable. And I also think that that's okay. This sort of the reason that I really like your question, you know, about it being scalable or not, because I think it goes back to what I shared in response to Rebecca's question earlier about having to decide what enough looks like with anything that, you know, just because an event works really well, let's say with 15 people, doesn't necessarily mean that more is better. It doesn't mean that it would work with 30 people because once you have 30 people, the energy in the room really changes. You can't do the same things with 30 people that you can do with 15 people. You can't do the same things with 15 people that you could do with five people. It doesn't mean that you couldn't do something great at each of those levels. And I think there's different types of events potentially that would be more scalable. I've often thought about doing a one day, I don't think conference is the right word, but something like that, like a gathering that's maybe for 75 or a hundred people that, you know, the ticket price is lower than what, you know, a full immersive multi-day, you know, retreat, all-inclusive retreat experience would be. And, that enabled, you know, honest conversations and topic specific stuff and being able to do, you know, panels and salons and everything about, you know, money and sex and friendship and change and death and body image and just basically everything I've thought about that. But those are really just thoughts at this point. So I'm not really sure. Basically, my answer to your question is here are my thoughts and (laughs) I don't have necessarily like a, a concrete answer. But 
to your other question about Trixie, if Trixie could have a home base, um, Bend, I think I do love Bend a lot. And, you know, this year, because of the decisions that I made to travel and to be on the road so much, it's actually kind of a bummer not to be in Bend. I didn't realize that I would miss it as much as I actually do. Although I don't think that being in Bend in the winter is for me. I don't really like being cold. I'm not a huge fan of the snow for more than maybe a week or two at a time. And particularly living in a van. I mean, it just, you know, my van does not have the the warmth, the warmth or the comfort level to be able to, you know, be there in December and January. So um, weather definitely dictates that. But when I'm sort of dreaming about 2020, and I'll say dreaming because I am not making any plans for next year, this year got, I think, a little bit overscheduled too far in advance. And I'm trying to avoid that as much as possible for next year. But I will say when I'm dreaming about 2020, I'm thinking May, June, and July in Bend for sure. And then um, potentially also time in the fall as well. But that feels like a good home base. You know, it's been my home for the last four or five years. There's a lot of people that I love there. That's where Paul is. That's where my cats are. That's where, you know, a lot of good friends are. And it's also a pretty easy place for van life. Um, I know good, safe places to park. Um, I have friends whose driveways I can park in or, you know, places that I can shower and do laundry and lots of people who love me. So it feels like a good community for me there. So I think I'm going to spend, you know, quite a bit of time there, hopefully next year. And, you know, this sort of touches into a larger thing that I've been thinking about this year of what I want lifestyle wise. I think that the living in the van, living in the van and traveling in the van are kind of two different things, but I've realized that I really either want to be working with the van stationed in one place, right? Like if I'm in Bend for three months, that's a really easy way for me to work full time essentially. And I, if I'm working, I'd like to be mostly in one place. And if I'm traveling, I would like to mostly be off work. I don't think that the being on the road kind of digital nomad thing is really for me, especially with the type of work that I do and, you know, needing to find places to record and quiet spaces and good internet and all of that. I actually just find it really quite stressful bouncing from place to place trying to do that. So I think that next year will be a lot more for me of, you know, being in one place for, let's say, two to three months at a time, whether I'm in the van or otherwise, and then, you know, working a lot and then hopefully taking time completely off work, which I mostly haven't done. I've been at least low-key working during all of my traveling, all of my hikes. I haven't had, you know, proper, let's say, even like a full week completely off in, I mean, I can't even tell you how long. So sort of some of my ideal plans for next year too involve taking two months off. I'm thinking maybe April and August. And my business is currently set up in a way where if I'm not working. I'm not making money. I don't have paid time off or anything like that. So there are some logistical hurdles, but whew, yeah, I'm thinking be in one place more, be in bend quite a bit is my hope. But those are really good thought provoking questions. You're giving me lots of <laughs> personal good stuff to reflect on Mary. Thanks so much. Hey, Nicole, it's Paula Grigorovich, also known as Paula G from outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And my question is, that you've talked about the financial dance of the transition to moving in to Trixie, the divorce, and this year's travel and such. So how do you personally crunch the numbers to determine what money you need, what needs to happen next, and what level of reserve is personally necessary for you to not feel totally unhinged about things? And I know that this is different for every human, um, so I'd love to know what your perspective is. It's something I'm always agonizing over. Um, so perhaps it's both a personal and a universal question. Thanks a lot.
ooh, yes, let's talk about money. I love talking about money. So yeah, moving into Trixie was definitely a financially motivated decision. I am, of course, excited about the adventurous aspects of it and the simplicity and sort of the nomadic getting to travel around and not have to necessarily be in one place and the flexibility of that. All of that is definitely appealing to me, but the top, top reason that I decided to do this was money for sure. I had what feels to me like it must be one of the most amicable and loving divorces of all time, which obviously isn't to say that it hasn't been sad and painful and, and you know, filled with grief, but that's a separate topic. What I was going to say about it being, you know, mutual and amicable and loving, still the logistical side of it was kind of a nightmare. We really financially entangled our lives and ourselves together, which I wouldn't do, I think, going forward. Just, you know, because logistically, it's it's quite hard to get out of. I think in order to kind of talk about my answer to this question, I'm going to back up a little bit and just do kind of like a nutshell personal financial background, because I think that money stuff, you know, it doesn't obviously require oversharing or it doesn't necessarily, you know, we don't need to give each other any more information that we're comfortable giving, but I do think that context is helpful. So for me, when I was growing up, my father worked, my mother stayed home with me. Um, you know, I, I think when you're younger, you don't really know that much about your parents' financial situation other than maybe what you can sense. I think this is particularly true if things are good and stable, which they were for the majority of my childhood. My impression looking back is that, you know, my father earned quite a bit of money. And what I now know to be true is that they made what I will just say are financial mistakes that led to bankruptcy and really not having any money. And I think that created within me some big scarcity fears. But more than anything, it made me, mm, I don't know if skeptical of money is the right word. There's obviously still, you know, some personal work that I'm doing and rewriting some of these stories. But, you know, our lifestyle changed so dramatically as a family, sort of like when there was money and then when there was no money. And um, the happiness factor, I think, in the fa in my family, especially with my parents, also really changed quite a bit in that regard that, you know, there's a lot of depression and unhappiness and anger and, you know, problems in their marriage and relationship and stuff that all had to do with money. And so I think I was just always skeptical of, well, if you have a lot of money and you rely on having a lot of money, like in order to have fun and to have good loving relationships, you know, if that goes away and you aren't able to have that, I don't know, there was, there was something there for me that I just never really saw having a lot of money as a motivating factor. And I, I bump up against that sometimes of, is that a limiting belief? Is that something that I need to work on? You know, probably most things are more nuanced, um, you know, than they appear at the surface. But I will say that in my own experience, I've been working jobs, really working to pay for myself since I was about 15 years old, I think 14, 15, that's when I started working, paid my own way through college, the combination of scholarships and, you know, working two or three jobs at a time, graduated with about $50,000 in student loans. Uh, and from there, I was really obsessed with getting rid of that debt. Again, I wish that I could go back and, you know, tell my 18-year-old self, maybe don't take out that much money. Maybe you don't need to do that. Again, that could be a separate conversation, but I really felt strangled by the debt. I don't know if everybody feels that way, but for me, it felt like this all-consuming thing when I saw, you know, these hundreds of dollars every month that I was, you know, could be putting in, could have been putting in savings, could have been using to do more fun stuff. Um, you know, at the time I was just really resentful of that. And so my really singular 
mission while kind of maintaining non-traditional employment, which is what I chose to do, was really, really, really frugal living. Everything that I owned, you know, fit in my small car, never really put down roots anywhere. I was obsessed with not going into more debt and in paying off these loans. I paid off the student loans in about six years. I think it took me about six years. And when I did that, I started putting pretty much all of the money that had been going into student loads into savings of different kinds because I had always had non-traditional employment. I had never had a 401k type situation. Uh, I didn't really know what retirement accounts looked like for people that had my career path. So, you know, started learning, started asking people and, you know, researching and got really into personal finance and it's still something that I'm really into, but, you know, opened my first Roth IRA and then traditional IRA and kind of went that route of realizing, oh, if there's going to be long-term savings, I'm going to have to do it myself. Um, not, I mean, everyone has to do it themselves, but that there was no, there's no HR department, there's no, you know, anyone to talk to, or there's no, you know, employer matching of funds, um, at least, you know, with my current path. And when Paul and I got married, we were both debt-free, you know, which which was really wonderful for us, and that felt like a big privilege. And throughout our marriage, we both earned income, although him at a much higher rate than me, especially, I'd say, from like the second year that we were married kind of on, um, you know, I was making a lot less money than, than him. And so what that looked like in our arrangement was he paid all of our living expenses. He earned enough money to pay all of our living expenses and more. And so all of my income plus the surplus of his income went into savings. And so we were able to, you know, accrue savings that way, not take on any other debt outside of the mortgage. And so when we got divorced, um, you know, my proposition was, hey, we didn't earn the same amount of money the whole time. I don't, you know, think it's fair for us to split everything 50-50. So we wound up splitting along the lines of what felt fair to us, um, more in the range of like 70-30 with obviously him getting a lot more than me, which is what felt fair to me. And so in, but you know, in the wake of that uncoupling, I still didn't have any debt. I don't have any expensive chronic health issues. I don't have any dependents. You know, I have my different IRA retirement funds that I've added to over the years. And then, you know, I had a chunk of our joint investments, certainly not enough to live off of for any significant period of time, but enough to not feel totally panicked and frantic about money, which I was grateful of given how many other things were changing. And, you know, I think the not feeling as panicked and frantic also comes from the fact that I virtually have no financial responsibilities. The van, you know, Trixie is paid for. We basically bought it in cash um, that came from mine and Paul's joint savings. It was one of the things that we decided to do, you know, together, um, you know, before splitting up money is, you know, making sure that I had a place that I was going to live. And so being able to have the van be paid for was huge. Um, and being able to have the budget for building it out paid for was huge because obviously that means I don't have mortgage or rent or anything right now. So my monthly bills are basically my cell phone and van insurance and health insurance, which together, I mean, off the top of my head, I feel like total about $350 a month. Obviously there's like groceries, of course, and like other things that I choose to spend money on that, you know, things that bring me joy or, you know, things that I want to do, some things that I have to do, but the actual benchmark of how much money I need right now is lower, I think, than it's ever been in my adult life. And so that being true gives me a lot of freedom. So your question, how do I crunch the numbers to determine what's needed, what needs to happen next, what level of reserve is personally necessary for me? Honestly, I feel like that's the answer to that question has been different at many different stages of my life. I think how much risk we're willing to take is different depending upon our circumstances. Even being able to pursue my chosen less traditional career path has been possible because I don't, you know, currently need access to better healthcare. And obviously that's a huge privilege. And also therefore it's a 
risk that I'm willing to take. I mean, I, I have health insurance now, but it's not great. <laughs> I will tell you that. Um, and so, you know, how much risk I'm willing to take on has changed at different times. This year, though, you know, what crunching those numbers has looked like. Basically, after I moved into the van, I sat down. I looked at all of my money. How much do I have? Where was it currently being stored or invested? And then, you know, I, I mean, I wrote out all of the numbers. Okay, this is what's here. This is what's here. And then I made my best guess estimate for what my monthly expenses would be while living in the van, which was an interesting process because obviously I've never lived in a van before. So it was a combination of looking at, you know, what my expenses had been, how much I thought I was going to spend on food, researching a lot of, you know, what other people doing van life, how much money they spend. And of course, there's a big range, but, you know, really doing my best guess estimate for what I thought that it would be. And obviously it is just a guess. I'm still figuring that out now, you know, comparing what my guesses were to my lived experience. And really I used that estimate to then determine how much money I thought that I needed to earn each month of 2019. So, you know, I really did that earlier this year and my top financial priority this year was of the savings that I had after getting divorced was setting aside a six month emergency fund from that savings that I hopefully wouldn't have to touch. That was my really, that was my big thing. And I still have that set aside. I haven't touched it. And for me, having that emergency fund, that's my personal benchmark of comfort. It's what I need in order to feel okay, like not feel unhinged, I think is the word that you used, which is a totally relatable experience, you know, particularly as I've recently restructured my business and I'm still not entirely sure what my monthly earnings are going to be in the second half of this year. So once I see how all of that looks and once I'm able to spend more time living in the van and putting together a more accurate you know, van life budget for myself, I'll be able to make what hopefully feels like a good fit financial plan for 2020. I think all of this for me comes down to just relentless self-honesty. You know, I asked myself, how much money do I need to have in an emergency fund? How much money do I need to have coming in every month in order to feel like it's enough? And as I said earlier, I really pushed myself to come up with a specific answer to what enough actually is, because otherwise, I don't know if this happens for you, but otherwise I can easily get trapped in just endless striving for what feels like an ever moving carrot at the end of the stick that until I actually said, this is enough for me and not necessarily limiting to that. Sure. I would be thrilled to you know, have more financial security and to have more money coming in. So it's not like it's a hard upper limit or anything, but unless I know what enough looks like, it's very hard for me to make any decisions, you know, even to make decisions of, can I travel? Can I afford this? What does it even mean to be able to afford something? And I think that's different for different people. And, um, you know, if, if folks are interested in this topic, I'm happy to go into more, you know, of my thoughts around that. But I think, you know, all of this might evolve, but for now that sort of simple level of checking in with what does enough look like and, you know, uh, what money is coming in and, I also am someone who I enjoy budgeting and everything that goes along with that. And I enjoy like having, being in frequent touch with my money. So logging in, looking at my bank account, going through credit card stuff. I use the um, YNAB, uh, you need a budget software and I love it. That works really well for me. And I find a lot of joy in doing that. And so, yeah, that's really what it has looked like so far this year. Hi, Nicole. This is Daria calling from Toronto. I would like to know what home means to you and how do you create a feeling of home while on the road and also while going through so many transitions in your life? Thank you. Hmm. The most honest thing that I think that I can tell you is that I have no idea what home really means to me. I've pretty much just spent my life moving around New York, London, LA, San Francisco, Bend, 
Trixie is the 22nd place that I have called home in my 34 years of life. So yeah, I've I've moved around a lot. I don't have a childhood home. My parents currently live in a house that at the time of this recording, I haven't yet been able to go and visit. So I think that a lot of the traditional markers of home are things that not just that I don't have now, but that I've never really had. So what does that mean? What does home mean to me? Um, How do I create a feeling of home on the road and while going through so many transitions? I mean, these are good questions. Honestly, I don't think I've done a great job of you know, creating home on the road or anything. I wouldn't say that I feel at home in Trixie yet, really, but I think that's mostly just a function of time. I haven't lived in the van consistently enough for that to be the case. I do, I do think that that establishing home takes time, not always, but often. It took me about a year and a half to really love living in Bend. I struggled quite a bit um, when Paul and I first moved there because, you know, we didn't know anyone and it was a place that was unfamiliar and we didn't have roots or a community. And that was hard. You know, it can take a long time for somewhere to feel like home. It took me leaving New York and coming back twice to understand how much I love it there to realize that just like the smell, the smell of the air coming up to the sidewalk out of the subway grate. If you have spent any time in New York, it's such a specific smell and it has a sense of home to me whenever I'm there now. I, you know, you walk over the grate and you smell that air and it just, there's something in that. I feel that way about certain places in London. I feel that way about certain places in Bend. Those places are definitely all a part of me, but are any of them my home? I don't know. Because even the idea of home it seems to be of one place, right? Like your home is one place. So I I think that that's tough to say. I also think that maybe part of the reason that I'm struggling with this question is that my answer almost defies the question itself. Meaning, so like when you ask how I've created a feeling of home while being in transition, my answer honestly is that I haven't. Being in transition like this does not feel at all settled. It does not feel at all like home. It feels honestly pretty stressful. It feels frightening. Of course, it can feel enticing and empowering too and all of that and more. And you know, I've gone through all of that in the last year, all of those emotions, of course. But I wouldn't say that being in transition like this feels like home. And if I had to live in this state of upheaval, like emotional and logistical, oh my God, no, 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 no. So I I wonder, you know, I think that question of like what home means to me, to you, to each of us is a really interesting one. And it's something that I would really be curious about other people reflecting on. But this idea of you know, how do you create a feeling of home while going through like so many transitions? I almost want to say, I don't know. And maybe that's fine. Um, I think sometimes I put, sometimes I think often I put too much pressure on myself to feel good and feel okay, regardless of what's happening. And sometimes that's just not the case when I am literally houseless and homeless. I don't know that I have a sense of home. And what if that's okay? What if it's okay that I don't know. I mean, so I think while I can't tell you necessarily how I've created a feeling of of home, I can tell you this, that more than anything, what I want is to build that home inside of myself. Because what is home traditionally, right? I think it's, it's a place where you feel safe, hopefully, a place where you're loved, a place where you're comfortable, a place that's well-worn, a place that you tend with care, a place that you fill with things that bring you joy. And honestly, I want all of that 
inside of myself. So maybe that's what home means to me or what I'm hoping that it's going to look like, you know, going forward in the next phase of my life. Hi, Nicole. This is Stephanie from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I love your honest conversations about money. You asked a similar question in a previous season's outro. I would like to know, what things or experiences are you intentionally spending money on right now? And what types of expenses do you avoid? Ooh, okay. Well, right now, I am intentionally spending money on this six-week road trip around the UK. I'm working while I'm here, so it isn't fully time off or vacation for me or anything like that, which means that there's definitely money coming in while I travel because I am working. So that's that's awesome and is a lot of what makes this possible. But uh, I'm also pulling from my savings to pay for this trip for sure. I lived in London for six years when I was a kid, and I came back for a week in 2017. And ever since then, I've been dying to spend more time here and particularly to go to more places other than just like London and the immediately surrounding areas. There's been a lot of places on my list that I've wanted to visit that never I never got a chance to go. So I decided to prioritize this trip um, with the newfound sort of flexibility and freedom that I have schedule-wise this year. Cost-wise, I'm traveling with someone else, which definitely helps in affordability because we're splitting the cost of Airbnbs, we're splitting the cost of car rental, that kind of stuff. And we've chosen to grocery shop and cook most of our meals while here to help cut down on costs instead of you know eating out all the time and all that kind of stuff. And mostly our entertainment is walking around and, and looking at things and you know not spending a ton of money on entertainment. But even still, you know, I'm definitely spending more than I would if I were living back in the van in the U.S. for these same six weeks. And that was definitely an intentional choice. Part of making that choice is what I said, that I wanted to spend more time in the UK. But honestly, part of it is also that I was craving the feeling of spaciousness and separation that comes from being on another continent and a vastly different time zone from almost everyone that you know. It's a really particular kind of freedom that I really need right now. And it is worth it to me (laughs) to spend money on that for sure. As for what I'm foregoing, I'd say mostly everything else. I'm not really shopping or buying anything tangible other than food right now. I'm not spending money on rent or a mortgage, obviously, or on utilities or on home goods or art or home repairs or really anything like that that can often come with having a home or living in a place just because that's not currently my reality. I will say, though, that there are two upcoming purchases that I plan to very intentionally spend money on. And I want to bring this up because I think, I mean, there's so much bullshit around the topic of money and, you know, what it is and is not okay to spend money on. And, you know, there's, I think, a lot around this idea that, like, it's better to spend money on experiences than things or, you know, travel is a morally superior way to spend money than, you know, shoes. And obviously those are just examples. But I do think that there's some really unnecessary moral judgments at the end of the day everyone can do what they want with their money and, you know, spend it in the way that feels good to them. And so, you know, since I just said really that I'm focusing on travel, which I am right now, the fact that there are two upcoming purchases that, you know, again, I'm going to spend intentional money on. The first is getting a color analysis done by my friend Janine. I'm super interested in this. The It's the idea, as far as I understand it, of, you know, going through a process with someone to determine which colors look the best on you, which I'm really excited about. And that leads to the second thing that, because obviously I will pay her for that. And then the second thing that I'm going to be spending money on is a small wardrobe of clothing that is an actual good fit with my new lifestyle. I haven't gone proper 
clothes shopping in like so many years, so, so, so many years. I've done a little bit of thrift store shopping in the past year just to get um, some clothes that were bigger because my body has changed. So I wanted clothes that fit, obviously. Yes. <laughs> it's it's not my body's fault. <laughs> I just need bigger clothes. So I did that. But otherwise, I really haven't put a lot of intentional thought into my clothing for a really long time. Part of that, I think, is kind of what I was saying before about the like moral superiority of, you know, I'm better than that. I don't care about, you know, what I look like or whatever, which of course is not true. Like I, I definitely do, but I think I just, I don't know, maybe I got swept up in like that aspect of minimalism. I don't know. There's a lot there to unpack potentially, but now that I'm living in a van, it's been really interesting to realize that the clothes that I do have, some of the things that I love really just aren't a good fit for that lifestyle because I don't have anywhere to hang things up. Right. So the clothes that I have have to be able to essentially be like rolled or folded and stored in the storage under the bed in Trixie which doesn't work for everything. You know, I'm not ironing stuff. I need things to not wrinkle a ton. I need things that, you know, don't need to be hand-washed or, you know, that can really hang with, um, like that can really handle me rolling up to a laundromat and like throwing stuff in the washer and in the dryer. I don't really have a place to hang dry clothes more than a couple of pieces of clothing. So really thinking about um, fabrics and things that are going to be a better fit for that, things that maybe don't have to be washed as often that aren't going to smell bad. Um, so it's just some more intentional choices with that. And, you know, so getting the color analysis done, being like, okay, this is maybe the color palette that I want to choose for a like small capsule wardrobe. And then, you know, with that, just kind of reminding myself like, it's okay to care how you look, which maybe sounds silly, but it's okay to want to feel good in your clothes and really that combination of pleasure and self-care. So that will be an intentional purchase coming up for sure. Hi, Nicole. This is Lindsay from Michigan. I am wondering what Slytherin traits do you most embody and who is your favorite Slytherin character and why? Thank you. <laughs> I love this question, especially now that I'm recording from the UK where I'm basically just binging on all things Harry Potter. I went on a Harry Potter walking tour when I was in London called the Tour for Muggles, which takes you to a bunch of different places that were used as filming sites in the movies and they do trivia and all kinds of fun, nerdy things. That was incredible. Went to one of the streets in York that was supposedly an inspiration for Diagon Alley. That was super cute and going to go to the back to the Warner Brothers studio tour in September. I already have my ticket for that. So yeah, I am very much like in Harry Potter mode for sure. Um, Slytherin qualities. Yes, I am a Slytherin. I am a proud Slytherin. So let's see qualities that I most embody. Obviously this is open to my interpretation, of course. Okay. I'm going to pick three. I think the first one that comes to mind is that I actually do think I'm quite selective in who I'm truly close with. That seems to me to be a, a Slytherin quality. I think that I am open and honest for sure and have, you know, lots of friends of varying degrees and different level and, you know, people that I do different things with and all of that and um, lots of acquaintances. But in terms of like, if we're talking like close, close inner circle, the people who I feel like okay, like you're in, you're my person. I think that is a lot more rare and, and probably more rare than people would think based on meeting me or, you know, based on knowing a little bit about me. But with that said, once you're my person, you're my person. And that seems to be a very Slytherin thing. I think that they're not necessarily loyal, you know, maybe the way that Hufflepuffs or others are, are loyal um, in a more broad way. But I see Slytherins as being really, really loyal to who their people are 
I once heard it described as Gryffindors would die for you, but a Slytherin would kill for you. <laughs> that sounds very accurate to me. Uh, I also think self-preservation, um, which I, don't, I mean, that can come off as selfish. I mean, <laughs> look at me going into a deep dive on Harry Potter. I think any of the houses, any of the qualities are great or awful at the extremes, right? So I think, you know, not just Slytherin, but all of them can have qualities that are great and awful at the extremes, but self-preservation I think is one of those. But if I dig into it a little bit, I feel like for me, it's really just like recognizing your own value and knowing that this is your life. Like it's your one life. You get this one shot and, you know, not being willing to put yourself in unnecessary risk or danger. That feels really true for me. And then the third, I would say the third quality is probably resourcefulness. As Dumbledore said, a certain disregard for the rules. <laughs> I think that that definitely applies to me. And I think part of being resourceful is being willing to do whatever it takes, which obviously, again, at the extremes is not great. But um, I'm quite determined and, you know, when I really have my mindset on something, yeah, I'm willing to do pretty much whatever it takes. As for favorite Slytherin character, uh, okay, I'm going to be honest. I'm just going to say it. Bellatrix Lestrange for sure. Um, fun fact, you might not know this, but Trixie, my van, is actually named after Bellatrix. So yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, she's fucking awful, obviously. Like she's terrible. She's the worst. But she's all in on being awful, if you know what I mean. And she's not shy about who she is. Like, she's just awful. And my thought is sort of, if you're going to commit, commit and, like, be who you are. And so while I'm not necessarily modeling my morals or behavior or worldview on that of Bellatrix Lestrange, I do have a certain affinity for her, a certain, like, l love to hate her, hate that I love her relationship, sort of. Um yeah. <laughs> Slytherin, proud Slytherin, for sure. Hi, Nicole. Hi, everyone. My name is Natalia. I'm from Moscow, Russia, and I recently moved to sunny Denver, Colorado, America. So my questions are, first, um, how do you manage your time? I know you have a big life changes right now, and with amount of work you do, it's I guess it's a very important topic. And my second question is... Um, do you have any money investing routine? If yes, could you please let us know more about it? Thank you and have a lovely day. Yeah, this is a good question. Um, I think it's a really good example of a question to which I am happy to give honest answers, but probably don't have necessarily any wisdom. But I guess all we are asking from each other is honesty. So this year has been pretty wild in regard to how different my schedule has been on any given day or week. I've talked about that a little bit, but you know, I've lived in my former home in Bend, I've lived in a tent in the desert, in my van, at friends' houses, at Airbnbs, at motels, at the beautiful venues where I've hosted my retreats. And with each place and with each phase of my year, there's really been quite a different routine or lack of routine sometimes and a different style of managing my time. Have I been managing my time well this year? Who knows? I think in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I think the most honest answer to this is that I'm, I've done the best that I can, right? I've done the best that I can this year. And sometimes that has looked like just getting the bare minimum done. Sometimes that's looked like getting a lot done and that's okay. I'm not a robot and this has been a particularly trying year, and I find that 
bouncing around all over the place while it can be fun and while I love adventure and that fills a part of me, it's definitely not necessarily the best as far as time management goes. But I think that while sort of our capitalist productivity system would tell us otherwise, you know, managing your time in perfect increments every day. I don't think that that's the goal, or at least it's certainly not my goal. I love having periods of time that are completely unmanaged, times that can be unrushed and spontaneous and more free. And perhaps, you know, this year is tipped a little bit more in that direction than it will in the future, but I think that that's okay. But in general, my time management is based really on an ongoing assessment of my priorities, commitments, and desires. And I, I like to do that weekly. That really works for me. So typically, um, if I'm working you know, more of a normal work week, typically on Friday afternoons, I'll sit down with my planner. Yes, my paper planner. I am definitely someone who um, begrudgingly uses things like you know, Google calendars in order to schedule things with other people, meetings and such, but I am a pen and paper planner person. So I'll sit down with my planner and I'll look at the week ahead and I'll ask myself some questions. I'll ask, you know, what are my deadlines? What needs to get done and when? Where can I make time, not just for the urgent things, but for the important things too, even if, especially if those things are only important to me and, you know, no one else is necessarily waiting on them. So like, how do I carve out time that are things that are important to me? When it comes to work, I typically choose three high level priorities for each week. I think, you know, a big caveat here, keep in mind, of course, that I'm self-employed, that I have much more control over my time and schedule than I otherwise might. You know, I don't have to commute. I also, I don't have children. I'm not, you know, taking care of sick or aging relatives. And so my time is really my own in a very privileged way. I think that when we talk about time management, that kind of stuff needs to be acknowledged. I mean, that was sort of just the tip of the iceberg. There's obviously, you know, more nuance that we could go into, but, you know, even the ability to ask some of these questions and make some of these choices that's specific to my situation. So with that in mind, yeah, I, I try to choose my, what my three top priority work tasks are for each week, things that really must get done to move my projects forward on the timeline that they need to move forward. That really forms the basis of my weekly time management. And then on a daily basis, I usually aim for three to five, you know, clearly outlined smaller tasks. But again, that'll really depend. My schedule is really different if I'm recording for the podcast versus if I'm doing other types of work. So if it's a day where I'm, you know, recording an episode with a guest, it's going to look a lot different than a day that I'm not doing that. But, you know, in general, I like the three to five, you know, clearly outlined smaller tasks. I find that I am usually sharpest in the morning. So when possible, I will do my heavy lifting work, more of my creative, you know, labor intensive stuff at that time. But of course, that's not always an option. And, you know, I work when I have to work. Yeah, it's funny. These probably sound like really simple systems and, and maybe they are, and maybe this isn't necessarily what you were looking for, but they do work well for me. And, you know, I said this before as an answer to an earlier question, but basically my foundation for everything is relentless self-honesty and, you know, under the umbrella of time management, that really includes being honest with myself about my actual capacity each day and each week, being honest with myself about what's realistic for me, about where it's really better for me to say no instead of yes, because I'm already at fully booked and, you know, at full capacity, all of that. So just honest checking in, I find that to be the most helpful thing. 
I think the last thing that I'll say in regard to time management is that I have work to do in this area when it comes to social media. I am working on better boundaries with that right now, experimenting with social media free Sundays. I have a friend who is a wonderful accountability partner for me with that. Shout out to Kate. Hi, Kate. Very grateful for you. So yeah, I'm working on on that because I can lose a lot of time to social media if I'm not careful. I feel like social media is one of those things and I guess a lot of different things, it could be this way where I'm looking for what I think of as like the minimum effective dose. There's so many good things that I get, let's say from Instagram, for example, and the kind of connection and community and that I'm looking for and, and learning and inspiration and all of that. Um, I'm looking for the point at which that no longer becomes true, right? So like how much do I have to use Instagram uh, in order to get what I want from it? And then at what point is any more usage really self-destructive, you know, detrimental, um, or just plain, you know, a waste of time. And I'm interested in that in other areas of my life too. And I guess that also sort of goes into a, a principle of time management is really looking at what am I spending time on and why do I actually have to, have I told myself that I have to spend my time this way, but if I'm being honest, I don't, is it's that someone else wants me to spend my time this way, but I don't really want to, you know, so really kind of being ruthless in question asking and honesty, and then deciding if there is somewhere that, that I want to make some changes. As for the the money investing, honestly, I'm, I'm not currently investing beyond my SEP IRA, which at my current income level as a sole prop self-employed person is the investment vehicle that just makes the most sense for me. So my, my 2019 goal is to hopefully max that out. But otherwise, I am not yet back to investing money like I was um, when I was married simply because I'm not making enough money to do that just now. So my previous investment routine is on pause, but I guess I can speak to that. When I was investing, it was exclusively in Vanguard, split between, I think, three or four different funds. I chose simplicity over perfection with my investment strategy because I find that it's it's really quite easy for me to get stuck in trying to do the best thing and then wind up doing nothing instead. So this was an area where I was looking for, you know, what felt like good enough. Maybe there are other things that I can and should be doing and maybe I will in the future, but, you know, uh, doing something better than doing nothing. Hi Nicole, this is Zoe calling from Detroit, Michigan. My question for you is, what are your current favorites of each of your five senses? So your favorite sound, your favorite smell, your favorite taste, your favorite touch or texture, and your favorite thing to look at. I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Take care. This is such a fun question, Zoe. I love this. Okay, favorite sound. Um I've been listening to a lot of Melody Gardot lately, an American jazz singer whose music I just adore. Listening to her sing, it's just, it's that like good, fresh, cozy, like people watching at an outdoor cafe on a perfect early summer afternoon while drinking my favorite tea. It just has this like really relaxed, lived in feel that I love. So that is probably favorite sound. Favorite smell, mm, I recently ordered a little sampler trio of perfumes from a company called Fleur, P-H-L-U-R, I think. 
they make a hypoallergenic, cruelty-free, vegan, sustainably sourced, you know, packaged with recycled materials, all that good stuff, uh, scents. And my favorite of the three uh, that I chose, it's called Hanami, which their website describes as their most minimalist scent, aquatic and floral, subtle and warm, notes of fig, white florals, hazelnut, and sandalwood. I'm not sure what any of that means. It's just like a lot of words, but it smells really good. And I like it. So that is my favorite scent. I think I'm going to order the full-size bottle of it. Favorite thing to touch? I haven't been able to do this as much here because bathtubs aren't as much of a thing I'm finding in, in the UK, but a favorite thing to touch is always warm water, baths forever. The pure glory of eating snacks in the bathtub while watching something good on Netflix is a hill that I am definitely willing to die on. Favorite thing to look at? I feel like my low-hanging fruit response is nature. I love being outside. But probably the more specific answer right now is that I love to watch other people laughing. I was just thinking about that this morning. I'm currently fascinated with express expressions excuse me, of joy. So that's probably my favorite thing to look at. And then lastly, my current favorite thing to taste definitely scones with clotted cream and jam. Very English afternoon tea time treat that I am enjoying very much. I have recently, after being vegan for some years, re-added um, dairy back into my life. Um, certain things, certain quantities, whatever is feeling good for me. But doing that has been a wonderful choice for me in this season of my life. And yeah, fresh baked scones, warm, smothered in clotted cream and jam. Highly recommend. That has definitely been my favorite thing to taste lately. Hey, Nicole, this is Kara, and I am from beautiful Round Lake, Ontario in Canada, aka Paradise of the North. And my question to you is, in terms of what others expect you to do and what you really want to do, how do you know when to draw the line and be able to say no to what they want you to do without feeling bad or selfish or rude. Thanks. I think this is a universal question, Kara. So you definitely aren't alone in struggling with this. I certainly struggle with it too. So I don't know that I have any magic answers for you, unfortunately, but I am happy to share some thoughts. So first of all, if you and I were having this conversation together in person and you asked me that exact question, I would first turn it around and ask you a question in response. I'd want to ask, who are these people that we're referring to here? Because I do think that specificity matters. On the one hand, when we talk about you know people's expectations, we might just mean society at large in a situation where, let's say, you are hoping to take a less mainstream path and you're dealing with going against what most people are doing. As someone who's chosen less traditional paths in almost all areas of my life over the course of the past 13 years, from creative self-employment to sobriety to long distance hiking for months at a time to living in a van to being vegan and then not being vegan and so much more, I would say fuck what other people think. Mine is not their life to live. It's easier said than done. I, I know that. But I don't know. I just really believe that we can't spend our one existence wrapped in anxiety of what the general perception and opinions might be, or in fact will be about our choices. I don't know. For this, I think it's helpful for me to just continue to remind myself of what I know to be true, almost like mantras, like things like 
it's okay to decide for myself. It's okay to choose something different from what's been deemed the most acceptable path. It's okay to choose something that makes me less likable. It's okay to be afraid and to do it anyway, stuff like that. I, I need to remind myself of that pretty often even now, and so I do. But then, of course, there's the part of your question that hints at the struggle of whether to say yes or no to specific people in your life, probably people that you love and care about, and that's universal too, I think. My approach personally to that is to communicate with those people one-on-one to find the truth amongst the you know, whatever my fears and questions are. I found that it's really easy to get caught up in thinking that we already know what matters to others or what they want or what they need or what they expect. We can make up a lot of stories about that, or at least I can, but it's not always the case. I'm not always right. I'm not a mind reader. And so my advice to myself for that situation is to just ask, to talk to them, to communicate my needs and desires, to try to understand theirs more clearly. And then from there to draw boundaries, experiment, make mistakes, iterate, keep going. And All of this can, of course, be hard work, but that doesn't mean that we can't do it. I think all of this, Kara, that I'm saying to you is is really just a reminder to myself that I don't need to waste time getting caught in stories or worries of what I assume that other people are thinking because I can just talk to them, (laughs) right? Novel idea. I'm trying to make that my practice by default, though, is to talk to people and to essentially negotiate or compromise or, you know, just really think that through. And I mean, of course, there's the part of your question then, you know, that suggests that maybe you've already done all of that work and that you know for sure what someone in your life wants or expects from you. And you're looking for the kindest way to, in fact, do the opposite thing. (laughs) I have been there. And, you know, I think specificity matters here too. It's easy for me to get caught in that binary black and white thinking where, you know, I've set up the paradigm where I want X and someone else wants Y and, oh my God, what should I do? Where there's this like big tension and big struggle, which I think can lead to resentment or guilt or feelings of either being trapped or being taken advantage of, which never feels good. So again, let's get specific. If someone I love, let's say, has invited me to an event that in all honesty, I would prefer not to attend, it's not really my thing, but this event is important to the person that I love, then more often than not, I'll go, you know, if I can, because what is it costing me really? Maybe I have to stay up later than I'd like or do an activity that isn't my favorite or perhaps even be bored for a few hours, but I believe in showing up for people in the ways that they need us to show up. And that's not really up to us. That's up to them. And that sometimes requires doing things that aren't our ultimate first choice to do. And and that's okay. I think that's part of what being in relationships means. On the other hand, if we're talking about something where I'd have to deny or change an integral part of who I am to meet someone else's expectations, I'm going to draw the line there. That's that's where I draw the line. And I'm going to do what's best for me. And hopefully the relationship is one in which we can communicate about this. But if not, if communication isn't possible, then that sort of makes me question what that relationship even is to begin with, which could be a whole other conversation. As for not wanting to appear selfish or rude, I think that's something to interrogate on its own. I mean, I know that I've been socialized as a woman to always put you know, others first and to be nice and to be accommodating and to meet everyone else's needs and keep the peace. But honestly, I'm just no longer willing to do that. It's not my job. It's not my role. It's not something that I'm willing to take on, which means honestly that I do choose what might be considered the selfish thing more often than not. For the most part, I do what I want to do. And, you know, if I look at my choices, I feel like I've set up my entire life to allow for this. I don't have children. I work for myself. I'm really comfortable with change. 
I do what I want when I want, you know, to the best of my ability. And sometimes this goes well and sometimes it doesn't. I feel like I do the best that I can with what I have at the time. And, you know, as I learn more and know better, I do better. And when I hurt someone, I apologize. And I definitely subscribe to the belief that the only true apology is a change in behavior. So I try to keep that in mind. I'm certainly not perfect at it, but I keep it in mind. And when someone in my life asks me for something, I the thing that's been most helpful for me with this kind of drawing boundaries and stuff is to allow myself to insert a pause before my response. You know, you don't have to answer right away for pretty much anything. You can say, you know, let me check my schedule and get back to that. You know, let me think about it and get back to you. And so for me, I pause, I think about it, I journal about it. I ask myself if I have the capacity to give what they're asking of me, large or small. And I also ask myself if I truly even want to do that thing. And if I, you know, do have the capacity and I can do it, then I get to come back to them after that pause with a really joyful yes, which feels great. And if I don't have the capacity or I don't want to do it, I'm allowed to say no. I think, you know, you might... You might think that you're not able to say no. And in a you know rare situation, particularly with a power imbalance, you know, I'd agree. Maybe that's true, but push yourself on that. Is it really, really true that you can't say no to their request? If I can say no, the question then becomes, am I willing to, you know, risk my reputation? You know, maybe that's risk my reputation as a nice girl or, you know, as the person that's always the go-to person. Um, yeah yeah, I'm, I'm willing to do that. And, and maybe you're not. And if not, then that's okay. But I think going through this process of self-inquiry allows us to feel more empowered in the choice. Even if the choice is ultimately to do what the other person wants you to do, you'll at least feel like you're choosing that on purpose for reasons that make sense to you. And in the end, I mean, the truthiest truth here is that sometimes you will look selfish or even rude by following you know, your own heart, your own gut. Sometimes people won't like it, but you're in charge of you. You know, what are your boundaries? Where are you willing to compromise and sacrifice and where are you not? Only you can decide that for yourself. I can't decide that. No one else can decide that for you. I think the thing for me is to just make peace with the fact that I cannot please everyone all the time ever. Like I I just can't. I can't. <laughs> Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> it is not possible. Hey, Nicole, this is Olivia from Massachusetts. I've been following your corner of the internet for a while now. And while watching your business grow and evolve, one of the things that I've really admired is your ability to stay true to yourself and to draw lines in the sand when things stop feeling right for you. So my question for you is, what have you learned about yourself through this process? I'd love to know what your non-negotiables are in your business and what advice you would have for balancing your truth and your business needs without getting stuck in the hustle. Thank you. It's definitely true that my business has evolved and grown and changed shape a lot over the years. And for me, it's always such a treat when certain folks like Olivia have chosen to stick around through all those changes and have found something valuable here. So thanks for that and for being here through it all. That really means a lot to me. I'd say that the main thing that I've learned about myself through that process is that I don't want to do one project or one type of work endlessly forever. Every I'd say probably two to four years, I begin to feel that a particular creative project or a program that I've created or a style of work has reached its conclusion and that I'm ready to move on to the next thing. I used to judge myself about that so much, really kind of under the line of questioning of what's wrong with you that you can't just pick one thing and stick with it. That's something I struggled with for a long time. But the truth is that 
we're allowed to change and evolve just because you used to want to do something or offer something in your business doesn't mean that you want to do or offer that thing forever. And now I give myself full and complete permission for that. And that has really changed the way that I work. It's changed how I feel about my business. And I expect now that anything that I start, that it'll eventually reach a point of feeling complete. And that's awesome. Longevity isn't my marker for success. And that has given me a lot of freedom. As for my non-negotiables in my business, I need to feel in alignment with the work that I'm doing. And I, you know, I, I want to kind of first say, I think that there's mm, some potentially damaging stuff around this idea of like, you know, follow your passion. And, you know, if you do what you love, it'll never feel like work and any of that type of stuff. Um, I don't think that that's always the case. I think it's, you know, totally fine and good and necessary to do you know, whatever type of work in exchange for money. We need money. That's the world that we live in. Not everything has to be this like, you know, passion project. So it doesn't mean that, you know, feeling completely in alignment or completely lit up by your work, it doesn't make you that, you know, that work more valid than than anyone else's work. But because this is my choice, right? I have chosen a less secure, less, you know, stable path um, and all that comes with that. There's pros and cons. And, you know, one of the pros for me is that I really am able to, feel in alignment with my work as much as possible if I prioritize that. And that means for me creating things that feel good to create, that feel important and impactful, and that are really honest to their core and that don't take advantage of people. This last point is huge for me. It's why, for example, I decided against ads and sponsors for the podcast, because I think that constantly selling things to people through the lens of making them feel like they aren't quite enough without that thing and creating that false sense of need, which is what a lot of advertising does, not all, but a lot, I think that that can be damaging and I'm not interested in perpetuating that. So, uh, you know, similarly, I try to avoid a feeling of urgency in the things that I sell. You know, you have to do this right now. This is going away forever. I don't want to give people like FOMO in order to make money that doesn't feel good to me. Another non-negotiable along the lines of money really is to pay people for their work, which is why every single guest you know on the show now gets paid. Having that funding goal was really important to me, even though I know that it's not at all the norm in the podcast industry to pay guests. Um, I actually don't, off the top of my head, I don't know anyone else that does it. Um, I'm sure there are people out there that do, but not that I know of. And Every person that I interview at my live events and retreats gets paid. Everyone that I work with overall in any capacity gets paid, which might sound obvious. Uh, you know, of course we pay people, right? But I cannot tell you how many times I've been on the receiving end of, you know, requests to do things for my time, for my energy, for my, you know, emotional product, uh, you know, or emotional labor, intellectual product, all of that um, for free um, or for exposure or something else. And all the while, the person that's inviting me to do it would be profiting off of my participation in their event. And I don't want that to be my personal business model. So it's non-negotiable for me. And it also changes, of course, like what I say yes to as far as requests from, from other people. I think that creative work is important and needs to be valued. And, you know, it's not just about emotional labor or anything like that. It's this is my actual intellectual work product. And, you know, I think that that is, that is valuable and I value other people in, in the same regard. The last part of your question about not getting caught in the hustle I honestly love reflecting on this question because it shows me how much I have personally grown and how much work I've done on myself and, you know, on this exact topic, because I used to be really into the hustle mindset and identity where, you know, I'd glorify being busy and I'd use it as a moral badge of honor almost. That feels icky to say, but it's true. But, you know, living and working like that honestly was making me unhappy. So I stopped. (laughs) Not overnight, not as easy as that. But, you know, I really worked to rewrite those stories about worthiness, about who deserves rest and and so much more. 
I'm still working on that. I think that these things come in layers and, you know, can be a lifelong process, but I'm no longer looking to be seen and valued as someone who hustles. That's not a part of my identity. It's not something that I'm interested in. And that feels awesome. And that brings us to the end of this round of questions. Thank you so much for all of the thought-provoking inquiries. I loved these topics and questions. And as I said, um, you know, at the beginning, I'm happy to do more of this style of episode. If this is resonating with folks, please just, you know, reach out and let me know. And I hope that in the meantime, my honesty and response to these questions has been helpful. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. So go say hi. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Janelle. Hi, Janelle. Hi. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions if you're ready. Yikes. Yes, I'm ready. (laughs) Yikes. I love that answer. (laughs) Uh, What's one of the most pleasurable things you've done lately? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, Actually, riding to the beach, but also eating really good food. Mm. Anything particularly delicious you've eaten? Oh, I've gotten into, not really intentionally, but by happenstance, making uh, fake ramen udon noodle bowls at home. So I just sort of imagine out of what's in my fridge, what could possibly go together to create the incredible Japanese style, um, big bowls of noodles with, uh, amazing broth and bits of finely sliced veggie. And then I just season at will until it sort of tastes almost as good as what I would get in a restaurant. And then I sit down and I just really enjoy (laughs) eating the noodles and drinking the broth. That sounds delicious. Isn't it fun when you make something that you're like, yeah, I would have paid, you know, whatever amount of money for this elsewhere. And I'm just as satisfied having it at home. Mm -hmm. What's one impactful money related decision that you've made recently? Ooh, this is the scariest decision I've ever made. And I made it six months ago. Um, but it's a year long marketing mentoring program for my online course. And so it's the most impactful because it takes everything that I've got, but I'm learning exactly the skills I need in order to make more money, which is my big goal is to, to, like, to really thrive instead of just get by and be really clever with getting by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, I love the ownership of, you know, I can do more than just survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's one goal that you're working toward right now? Well, um, thriving financially, that's my biggest goal (laughs) because I've been really good at, um, just getting by. So I'm so determined to change that narrative before my daughter leaves high school and goes into university, which is only a year away. Mm, Wow. Yeah. Um, what's a challenge or a struggle or frustration that you're facing right now? Oh my gosh, this is just all about money. (laughs) Yeah, the challenges and struggles and frustrations are more like they're mostly about, oh, I thought I was just getting ahead and now there's two root canals and a whole bunch of um, 
cavities to fix. And actually last night my car didn't start. So I have to troubleshoot that after our conversation. I hope I'm really hoping it's just the battery, but the challenges are feeling like I'm stretched, so stretched thin. Yeah. I think that's a really honest answer and super relatable of, okay, things are going well. And then this unexpected thing comes up, like whether it's related to money mm-hmm. or, you know, how we're able to spend our time. I've been thinking about that lately in terms of carving time out, like for myself, I haven't had proper alone time in like actually months, honestly, which like sounds mm-hmm. a little bit wild and meaning like time where I'm not doing chores or working or, you know, for more than a couple of hours at a time. And I know that's not quite the same thing as money, but I feel like things just keep coming up and I'm having to kind of look at, okay, what's my stuff? Is it like boundary issues where I'm saying yes to too many things or I'm too available or what's just the inevitable sometimes all the things happen at once? Yeah, but you know, I'll add because I'm a huge introvert and I need a lot of quiet time. The 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 stretched financially is a time thing too, right? Because what I find is that I will sacrifice my alone time for something that will help me get ahead financially. You mm-hmm. know, when I'm when I'm in that situation, and so then the stretch um, permeates all areas of my life. So I I totally get what you're saying about the time because it's part of the money. Yeah, no, that that's super real. I I also think that. Something that I've been appreciating that people are honest about lately is sacrifices or trade-offs, right? Like sort of what you just spoke to of, hey, you know, trying to earn more money is a high priority, which means that, you know, some alone time or some other things are getting sacrificed. So sort of this idea that we can't necessarily have all the things at the same time. And I'm always interested in how people make decisions and kind of what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. So the last question, what's one topic that you feel like you would love to hear more honest conversations about? What do you wish people talked about more? Oh, yeah, this is a good one. Um, Always money, but actually the bigger one for me right now is support. And um, I feel like I'm speaking in Canada and um, so there's a a bit of a North American ethos of – not only trying to do things on your own, but also celebrating the lone cowboy and the the bootstraps person and the self-made person. And what really upsets me, and especially um, I'm kind of speaking from the perspective of a single mother and um, self-employed person and artist, is that people that get support can get ahead with things where you need time and access to money in order to develop your craft faster than people that don't get support. And the kinds of support that people get often gets erased, right? So I'm really talking about support from family, support from friends, financial support, time support, you know, people who really love your kids and actually offer to take them so that you can get that time. And I feel like the sort of the women's work kind of support that is so necessary but doesn't always come with money gets really erased. And then um, not only is that support not being acknowledged to the people who are giving the support, but um, people that are on a similar path who are starting out, who are going, how did this amazing person figure out how to become a bestseller with books? And, And that person in all their interviews never ever mentions the fact that maybe their partner paid for all the bills for 10 years so they could Mm -hmm. develop that, right? Um, I think that's such a huge disservice and it's so unfair not to acknowledge every single last scrap of support that we get because it's so important. And on that note, I just have to say my mom is amazing (laughs) and she's so supportive. 
So, and yeah, I could go off on such a rant, but I'll leave it with that. I think we should always acknowledge our mentors and our teachers and every, every kind of support that we get because it's such a gift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think about this too. And, you know, obviously sort of with the caveat of, I guess, like people don't owe, you know, every detail of their life story and especially with like bank account stuff, but I'm always specifically with financial support that like starting up a new endeavor of any kind, like the money has to come from somewhere, either it's Mm -hmm. savings or it's, you know, a second job or a credit card or family money, or like there's, I mean, I'd say Mm -hmm. less than 10 places, right. That like the money can come from for something. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's obviously a type of support. I agree with you on, you know, the other things as well. Like if you have kids, you know, are people watching your kids? Are people helping you do other things? Do you have, you know, a partner or a roommate or a friend or something that you live with that helps with kind of just like the day-to-day domestic like life tasks, right? And all of these types of things that, you know, when it looks like someone's able to magically do everything, I think that's very often not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good one. So you're a member of our Patreon community, our support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a small and powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season, for which I am very grateful, right? Talking about money and support. (laughs) Um, Can you share why you decided to support the show? Oh, well, because you ask. (laughs) Asking is important. And because you do such good work in the world. And this kind of circles back to what I was talking about, about support is, um, you know, I need to put my money where my mouth is. And um, even if it's just a tiny little bit, this is what I love about Patreon. I'm able with a tiny little bit each month to make your vocation a little easier to support you in supporting, bringing the people's voices on the show to the public. And um, it just feels so good to be supportive and um, to actually have options to be supportive that don't break the bank either. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's why I do. And I know you have awesome goodies in your community too, but I don't I don't even feel the desire to participate so much as I just love being able to commit that little monthly amount and, and know that you're going to thrive more when all of us commit our little bits. Yeah. I mean, thanks. That's really well said. I think about that too of, you know, how can we have group support that doesn't cost anyone, like you said, like a bank breaking amount of money, but then when put all together, like makes a project possible. And I think about Mm -hmm. that a lot um, too, as far as, you know, how to structure a business and that type of stuff. Um, Will you lastly share where you live and maybe a social media link if people want to say hi? Sure. So I live in the North Okanagan Valley of BC, Canada, and my town is called Vernon, and I'm on the Silks First Nations traditional and unceded territory. And um, it's very hot and dry here, and it's Canada's wine country. And my social media account is on Instagram. It's Janelle Hardy Art, and Janelle is spelled like Janelle Monet. I love that. Um, I'm going to start putting links <laughs> in the show notes too for uh, social media stuff for outros. So I'm glad that you spelled that out. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want bonus content, other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your support is absolutely what allows the show to continue. And I can't wait to get to know you better once you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. Bye.